0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22. We are picking up where we left off last time. Just a note on that. As we go through Exodus, um, it's not my intent, it's not the consistory's intent that we cover every verse of Exodus. Um, We're not going to endeavor to make this a four-year sermon series. Um, But as we go through these case laws, uh, we're taking representative ones. Um, And we're going to begin skipping more and more space as we go through them because um, there's a variety right at the very beginning that we're able to enjoy. And so we're going to look at two verses this morning, um, verses 16 and 17, but we'll read the, the section in which they're found, which continues through verse 24. Starting at verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved of God the Father through Christ his Son. What exactly... Do those case laws which we just read have to do with one another? What unites them? What ties them together? Or are they just a a grab bag, a bunch of miscellaneous commands? I submit to you that there is a common theme, just as there has been in all that we've looked at. The section just preceding prescribed restitution for property That was stolen or lost. Before that were statutes regarding responsibility for animals that cause harm. And that was preceded by laws demanding death and laws responding to violence. Each of these sections is tied together by a, a common theme. And so it is with this section. What unites these statutes is the calling of the people of God to be devoted to Him exclusively. A sorceress is not to live because she leads folks astray from the true God. An abuser of animals shall die because he defiles the image of God. One who sacrifices to false gods, he presents the wrong image of the worshipping believer. One who wrongs a, a sojourner or a widow or an orphan. Misrepresents in the image that he casts the mercy that God has shown to us. God wants, expects, requires his priestly people to accurately reflect him to a watching world. And these statutes all teach God's people how to respond when those who are called by his name do exactly the opposite. And so it is with the two verses before us. Here we see God's just command concerning those who abuse an act that is intended to, that is intended to reveal the absolutely selfless love of God for his people and the unity of the people of God with their Lord. A beautiful gift from God, which far too often among sinful people is twisted into something it was never meant to be, twisted into something that is selfish and even abusive. And that, God cannot overlook. And so with these two verses, our God and King defends the sanctity of marital intimacy. That's the theme that we see in these verses. Our Holy God defends the sanctity of marital intimacy. And brothers and sisters, that's a defense that not only in that age, but in this is desperately needed. Now, in that defense, he first describes the offense that is being responded to. And then he describes the penalty under two particular circumstances. So we look first at how God condemns the selfish sin of scorning marital commitment. Our text starts with a description of the offenders. First, there is a man. We're not told much about him at first. Just that he's a man. The implication is that he is an Israelite. But aside from that, we know him only by his behavior. And then there's a woman who's described as a virgin. In other words, she is of the age to be married, but she is not married. She has to this till recently kept herself chaste. Moses specifies she is not betrothed. Betrothal is roughly equivalent to our practice of engagement, but more formal. Betrothal required the man the husband-to-be to uh, negotiate and obtain the blessing of the father of the, the, the bride, of the woman. Um, and then they entered into what was regarded as a legal contract to marry. If you wanted to break that engagement, that betrothal, it actually required a divorce. It was, it was quite serious. So this means the fact that she's not betrothed means that this woman is in fact marryable She's a prospect. But then the man seduces her. Now understand, we're not talking about simply having a dating relationship or having some innocent conversation. It's more than that. A young man can be incredibly focused and persuasive when he sets his sights on a young woman. Now if that leads him to carefully prepare for marriage and to seek her father's blessing, that is a wonderful thing. That is, using his focus using his passion in the right way. But it can be tempting for the man to use his power of persuasion as a shortcut, and that's what this one does. He sweet-talks the young lady, perhaps flirting with her until she's just absolutely smitten, perhaps filling her heart with convincing lies that lead her to act the way he desires, perhaps intentionally misleading her until her life revolves around him. The seduction described here could involve any of that, from from a flirtation that has a subtle strength that he barely recognizes to a very intentional and evil manipulation. Whatever the form it takes, the result is that his words lead the two of them into sin. And that's the final element of this offense. He lies with her. This describes intimate relations of the sort that are only legitimate in marriage. But, but, when, it, when the Bible describes this in the context of marriage, it uses an entirely different verb, a very common verb, the verb to know, yada. Genesis 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Because the intimacy that is appropriate between a husband and a wife within marriage, involves a knowledge of one another that is greater than their knowledge of anyone else, that is unique between the two of them. That's what it's intended to be. That's what it's intended to involve. But that's not what we find here. He has lain with her. A word that when it describes intimacy between two people always describes sin. The taking of Dinah by the Hivite man named Shechem. The relations between Jacob's son Reuben and his wife Bilhah. The behavior of David with Bathsheba. In each case, the man lies with a woman. This verb. And in each case, it is sinful. It is wrong. The man has led this woman into dropping her guard and trusting him, and then he abuses that trust to lead her in a rebellious act. And somehow the behavior is discovered. Now they have sinned. They have violated the seventh commandment. This is not technically properly adultery, which involves at least one party who is married, but it's what's known as fornication. When two who are unmarried act as though they are. But why is that wrong? Let's be clear, sex is given as one of God's good gifts. It's a gift that he designed as a blessing for those who are married. And all of God's gifts are good, but they can be misused and then they become very bad. Within the context of marriage, this kind of intimacy is filled with blessing. It brings children filling the family with image bearers of God. It deepens the unity between husband and wife, enabling them to share with each other something they share with no one else, uniting them in a knowledge of one another that is absolutely unique, empowering them to serve and bless each other in a powerful way. As such... Sexual intimacy within marriage is a powerful symbol. It's a symbol of their oneness before God, but it's also a symbol, according to Ephesians 5, of the absolute unity between God and his people, between Christ and his beloved church. That is an amazingly wonderful blessing within marriage. But recognize, in order to bring about those blessings within marriage, It has to be selfless. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, we're told the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, that's how God intended this gift to be used. In a way that is selfless, that involves an absolute sharing, an absolute openness, When that happens, when that is done, it leaves the husband and the wife exposed before one another, teaching them to love each other absolutely and without reserve, teaching them to trust each other completely. But that kind of vulnerability is impossible apart from those public, before God vows that affirm that this relationship is going to continue throughout life. That they are going to be absolutely true to one another in a way that they are true to no one else. That they will get through whatever happens. They will do so by God's strength. It is that vow, that marriage vow, that allows that selflessness, that vulnerability, that openness, that trust. And it becomes an amazing gift. But not if you separate the intimacy from the context of a committed marriage. Used outside of marriage, sexuality becomes an ugly caricature of what God intended. And it could not be otherwise. After all, there are no vows to assure their commitment to one another. There's no reasonable expectation. Hear this well, young people. Outside of marriage, there is no reasonable expectation of faithfulness or protection or mutual care or continuing in the relationship. Each person is taking something that God intended to be used within that context of absolute public commitment and they're using it selfishly to satisfy the passions of the moment. They're refusing to use it to honor God. Sweet-sounding, romantic lies to the contrary. They are embracing selfishness. For the man's part, it is a selfishness, young men, that is predatory, invariably. Men are made. They were designed by God to be leaders and protectors. Within the context of marriage, that is an amazing blessing. You were made, young men, To be able to impart confidence to your wife in the most difficult and trying of circumstances. To be able to lead her in a way that honors God, that blesses the family, that blesses those around the family. You were made to be persuasive, to be a leader. But this man has turned that upside down. He has used his powers of leadership to lead this young lady into sin. He has used his persuasiveness to turn her away from God. And when she begins to give in, showing just a bit of weakness, he pounces. And why? Because he desires nothing more than the passions of the flesh. Idolatry is preferring something, anything, more than you prefer God and submission to him. And that's what this is. It is idolatry of lust. It is idolatry of fleshly passions. And so intent is he on pursuing that idolatry. And please understand, this is spoken within the context of Israel, within the context of the church. That means that believers are not exempt from this temptation. And so intent is he on this idolatry that he makes a mockery out of the image of God that he was designed to display. And for her part, this is a foolish and sinful embrace of a lie. We don't need to hear the words of the young man to know that every word he has spoken to her is a lie. Some of you women have heard those lies. Sadly, some of you men, some of us men, have spoken the lies. He tells her she's the only one for him. And yet he doesn't say anything about taking a vow, making it public. He tells her that he loves her deeply, and yet he puts his desires above her good. He tells her that such strong feelings can't possibly be wrong, even as her conscience is crying out that it is Yet so desperate is she to feel cherished, to feel treasured, to feel special, that she believes him despite what her heart knows, that she follows him rather than follow God. Again, this is idolatry, an idolatry of feeling, an idolatry of passion outside of God. And folks, let's be real, this is relevant This is not something that happened in ancient Israel, but we don't know anything about it. It's commonplace. Our culture is saturated by it. And none of us is foolish enough, or at least we shouldn't be, to think that it doesn't enter the church. Now to be sure, there are differences between that age and this. For one, the women are more... Independent and forward in their attitudes and behaviors. But I submit to you, that just makes it easier for them to believe the lies. Makes it easier for them to become prey for the young predator. But the sinfulness of the behavior remains because the underlying principle is unchanged. So the question is, what would God have us do about it when it comes to light? Well, let's be very clear right at the outset. Premarital sex is not the unforgivable sin. Sometimes I fear we speak as though it is. It's not. But it is sin. It is an embrace of idolatry. It is stealing something that does not belong to you. It is necessarily fraught with lies and deception. And as such, it separates you from the Lord if you walk in it. And therefore, it must be repented of, and it demands seeking forgiveness. And God will forgive this sin as any others. If you seek His forgiveness through faith in Christ, He will forgive you. Let's be very clear about that up front, right? This is not the unforgivable sin. However, we also know that there are consequences for our sins, now consequences do not mean that you are not forgiven. They do not mean that you are somehow paying for part of your sin. Only Jesus and entirely Jesus forgives us from our sins. But he also at times prescribes consequences. Sometimes as here by the requirements of his word, other times by the circumstances and those consequences they're valuable. For one thing, they allow you to show the reality of your faith. As you boldly trust God and embrace those consequences, you show the reality of your faith. More than that, we show that we trust God. To know what's best for us. Because those consequences, they never seem pleasant at the moment. But when we trust God enough to take them up, we show that we believe that he knows best. And he does. And we therefore put ourselves right in the path of God's sanctifying work. And so it is here. God prescribes consequences. And the consequence is a righteous repentance of embracing marital responsibility. First thing the repentance was to involve, in this case, was the paying of a bride price. What in the world is that? Well, that phrase, bride price, describes what in Hebrew is called the mohar. The mohar was money or goods that were paid to the father of the girl that you sought to marry that offends our modern sensibilities. It It's derided as treating a woman as though she was property that you need to purchase. But this is not that. Please understand. Nor is it in any way degrading to women. In fact, it's just the opposite. The exact reason for Uh, The bride price is a bit debated. Some say it is to uh, compensate the family for the loss of the woman. Some say, and I think this is more likely, that it was intended to serve as something of a life insurance policy. Should the husband and father die, leaving the wife and any children that they had had brought into this world uh, without him, well, they would have a hard time surviving. And so this was to ensure... that at least in part, the father had the resources to to begin supporting her and them again. Maybe. We're not really told the exact reason for it, but we know this. It always involved a negotiation between the husband-to-be and the father. And that means it forced the young man to step away from his passion for a minute and to take seriously the responsibility into which he was entering. Forced him to see the significance of this act to the young lady and to her whole family and to the community itself. Forced him, in fact, to recognize this woman is valuable. Very valuable. Think of Jacob working seven years for each of his wives that was the mohar that was a significant price think how much he must have valued rebecca and leah or rachel and leah to to work 7 years 7 years for each now they weren't always that high a price but it was a demonstration of the value of this woman and the value of marriage you know what doesn't demonstrate the value of the woman, what does really treat her as property? Using her to satisfy your appetites with no thought about the consequence to her, with no thought about her eventual well-being. So, because this couple has acted married without being married, the first thing that the man must do is backtrack, go to her father and pay the bride price. And then he's to marry her. Repentance is to come with a wedding ring. Now note well, this is not presented as a recommendation or a suggestion. The man is not told, you know, you should really think about marrying. No! He shall make her his or he shall make her his wife. In fact, the parallel statute in Deuteronomy 22, verse 29, clarifies, and he may never divorce her. Listen, this is God defending the sanctity of marriage. Our God cares about marriage. For the vast majority of us, this is the way that God intends, to, intends for us to live the way he intends to mature us and complete us and use us throughout life. And so he will not turn a blind eye upon those who ignore marriage for the sake of their sin. He will not overlook their idolatry at the expense of marriage vows. Later, God would advise through Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Understand, this is in the context of Paul saying, listen, you folks live in a really difficult time, in a really difficult context. It's going to be a lot easier on you if you stay single. You can focus on the Lord. You won't have to worry about a spouse. That would be wise. But, he says, if they cannot practice self-control, then they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Because that passion leads into idolatry, which leads away from God, and that's never good. Well, this couple, they've done that. They have let their passion burn. They have sought to enjoy one of the rich blessings of marriage, apart from its duties, apart from its commitments. They've created an idol out of the lusts of the flesh. So now they are to repent by embracing the institution that should have come first. In a real sense, God is commanding them to formalize the relationship that they've already consummated. Because sex was intended to demonstrate and to formalize the oneness of spirit that a married couple is to have. Having taken on the symbol, now they must enter into the reality. Beyond that, God is now providing for the woman's protection and well-being. Because in that day, just as this one it was pretty likely their act would become well-known. The grapevine was just as active then. And when it did become known, it was very likely, then as now, that the woman would bear the brunt of the shame. It's not fair, but it's a reality that men often get a pass for such bad behavior while the women get... Whispers, and shakes of the head and clucks of the tongue. And as a result of her newfound reputation, it may become hard for her to find a husband. But our God is just. This man led her into that situation, brought upon her that shame, and now he will provide for her. He will legitimize her. She won't be relegated to this life of shame. No, no, no. They're going to walk forward together as husband and wife, as one. Because God commands it. But understand, this isn't merely a pity marriage. It's not merely making the best of a bad situation. Our God ordained this to grow them up. The sin these two embraced... His sweetly convincing words designed to get her to melt. Her romantic embrace of his his behavior and her behavior that she knew was wrong. That behavior demonstrated immaturity. Childishness. Young people, you hear that. It is childishness. Thinking to take Now, what should be reserved by God's decree for later. And so now God is telling them with this command, grow up, mature, because there are few things in life that will more effectively mature a Christian than marriage. Marriage is filled with demands of responsibility. Marriage requires caring for others and selflessly putting them first. And those are precisely the areas where these two failed. So God says, no more. Now you're going to enter into that relationship where you're going to have to develop that maturity. And really that's the heart of the issue, of the statute. God is calling this sinful couple to repent and seek maturity. My friends, it's hard counsel. I know, it's sometimes not. Occasionally you have the couple that they get caught, but they were planning to get married anyway, and so it's really not that big of a stretch, but so many times. It's a couple that never intended their relationship to go beyond the physical, to go beyond the brief fling. But God is saying, you know, you should have considered that before you acted married. And despite whatever misgivings they might have, they can remember our God is good and He knows what is best for us. Their friends may shake their heads and say, don't do it, you're going to make a bad situation worse. But God knows what he's doing, and he will use this command to bless his people. Because as they obey him, he's going to teach them powerfully the life-altering cost of giving their hearts to sin. He's going to cause them to crave the wisdom and the self-control that only he can provide. And beyond that, he's going to teach them to live selflessly. He's going to force them to rely on him constantly. And even more, he's going to show them What he is like. They're going to learn about his love. Which is rooted not in passions of the moment, but in a commitment. God loved us. Kids, you know this, right? God loved us when we were anything but lovable. He chose to love us. That's not what you'll find in those romantic novels, is it? But that's the heart of real, true love. It's rooted in a choice. It's rooted in a commitment. And now this couple, God is saying, you will commit to love one another, even if that love isn't there, even if the the passion burns cold. God chose to love us. Now you will choose to love one another. And if you do, your marriage will flourish Your devotion toward each other will form a a strong foundation, and together you will learn to love one another in a passionate way that is far deeper and truer than that momentary passion that first brought you together. Beautiful. But, but, verse 17 if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Period. End of sentence. Full stop. Why? Why would God allow for this? Why would He short-circuit His plan to mature them? But remember, God always has a reason. This young lady is still under her father's headship, under His protection. According to God's law, Dad had the right to nullify any vow that she took if he found it to be unwise. He also, therefore, had the right to refuse... To allow her to marry. Now in most cases, the wise father would not want to do that. They had already consummated their marriage. Assuming they were repentant, he should urge them to do what God commanded. Except in one circumstance. God's word is exceedingly abundantly clear that his people must not marry unbelievers. Deuteronomy 7, he assures them, the unbeliever will turn astray the heart of the believer. That's why Ezra grieved so deeply that he tore his clothes when he found that there were some among Israel who had married unbelieving people from around them. It's why Nehemiah physically attacked those who had done so. 2 Corinthians 6 says this is the equivalent of uniting the temple of God, which we are, with idols. So a godly man should forbid his daughter from marrying an unbeliever. And yet still the man must pay the bride price, still he must provide for her. Okay, fine, so what does that have to do with us? Folks, everything... Because the moral principles of God have not changed. A man and a woman engage in fornication outside of marriage. They are called as believers. Assuming they are believers, they are called to marry. They should openly repent of their sin. They should confess that sin to God, to their parents, to the authorities over them. They should formalize that marriage that has already been consummated. And in line with Deuteronomy 22, they should commit that they will never divorce. They have sinned. Number one job is to seek forgiveness from Christ. But alongside of that forgiveness founded in faith is repentance. And this is what repentance looks like. And God will bless that repentance. Repentance. He will bless it by maturing them. He will bless it by turning this relationship that began in sin, that began in idolatry, into a living image of Christ and his church. How amazing is that? There is no one but our God who could accomplish such an amazing, astounding, absolute transformation of the situation. But that is exactly what he will do. Please note, that does not mean this begins as an ideal marriage. It is a guarantee in this situation that they are both utterly immature, that if it was not for the sin they had committed, we would probably urge them to wait and to grow in maturity. But they didn't. And so now this is their path to maturity and God will use it powerfully. Our God defends the sanctity of marital intimacy. And in doing so, he reveals through repentant sinners the selflessness of his love, the unity of Christ and his beloved bride, and the perfect restoration of those who turn to Christ by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us clear and practical instruction for how we are to repent and turn of our sins and seek reconciliation with you. Father, we pray that you would bless us with a desire to not sin, to not embrace the temptations and the idolatries that confront us. But when we do, Lord, fill us with such faith in you that we are eager to, to embrace whatever consequences you decree, knowing that you are good and that your ways are perfect. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.